Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I am Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And today, Father, I wanted to talk about a skill that I think is sometimes misused, taken for granted. And that is whenever you're trying to present an argument and you don't really know the base material that well. So you just kind of quote the little one or two sentences you read from your argument. Um, You see a lot of people do this in term papers and high school reports that says, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I know this two little section passage that maybe or maybe not I fully understand and how that could, cannot be good. But then when you see someone who actually knows what they're talking about in and out, and is able to cite not just from one section, but from the entire thing, and have the theme of their argument be consistent throughout, that's a really rare and hard skill. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I have just completed reading The Theology of the Body by John Paul II. And throughout that that book... He he was going in and out of the Gospels and the whole Bible, really, with such consistency in ways that when you read it straight through, you might not think of it that way. But whenever you you have him articulate it in the way that he does, it just made so much sense. So I just basically want to start it by acknowledging how hard of a skill that is to to truly do it right, to read a paper all the way through and to articulate it in fulfillment. So that's where I wanted to just acknowledge that. I mean, obviously the theology of the body has a lot of big topics in it that it's probably going to require more than one read to go through to uh, to fully understand it. But just the way that he took the example of the how Jesus says it should have been in the beginning whenever he's talking in the Gospels to the Pharisees about marriage and then just goes through a, a four-hour dissertation while never veering from his his source material and never having the source material contradict him either and going in a very fast and comprehensive thing. So that's really where I wanted to start with um, and co- coinciding with the fact that I have been reading I just got finished with the first two Gospels and going through the third one now, that how much different it is when you read them front to back rather than just hearing them in your typical segment that you hear during Mass when they're more guided toward whatever particular feast they were celebrating for that Mass. But going through the Bibles, just basically cover to cover, um, particularly the Gospels, how different that that experience can be. And just wanted to, to start with, with that point. Uh, well, certainly uh, I give you a lot of credit for reading the Theology of the Body. It's uh, yeah, far, far more than a four-hour discourse. 127 audiences given over the course of four and a half years at the beginning of Pope John Paul II's pontificate. He had written the entire text out before uh, he was elected Pope and then 
apparently ran into a little bit of a stumbling block how a pope publishes a book had never been done before. So mm-hmm. he decided to deliver those as catechesis for the faithful and spread that out with a few interruptions here and there, but basically delivered the whole text piecemeal over the course of the next four and a half, five years. And it's a, a fantastic treatise inspired by the teaching of Pope Paul VI in Humanae Vitae, which was published 50 years ago this year, um, back in July of uh, 1968. Pope Paul VI said that to understand this teaching, the church needs to present an adequate anthropology. And Pope John Paul II had really done a philosophical anthropology. In other words, the, the basic questions about who is man, what does our sexuality mean? What, you know, what, uh, what's our purpose? How do we, uh, how are we composed emotionally, intellectually? What about free will? How do you understand all these things? Pope John Paul II had already published an international bestseller translated into a number of languages called Love and Responsibility, which is a philosophical presentation of that, which is Pope John Paul II's training as a philosopher he was a world-class philosopher and really developed the school of personalism. And then, in re- really in response to Pope Paul VI's call for an adequate anthropology to develop that out according to with incorporating Christian foundations, Pope John Paul II you know, built that whole anthropology up again using the, the scriptures, as you pointed out, Joe, and using them in a certainly an integral and consistent way, not proof-texting here and there with one or two lines to justify his own thesis, but really drawing from the corpus of sacred scripture an adequate anthropology and to present what that looks like in the beginning, original man, and then what it has become since the fall and the kind of wounds that we bear in historical man, and then looking forward to what God is bringing about and what we will, we will be like in the end, thanks to grace in eschatological man in the end. So describing man in these three, uh, through these three lenses, deriving an understanding of how we started and what God intended from the beginning, the original plan of divine love and creation, and then seeing how through sin, God didn't give up on us or even start to redirect us back to original man but actually directs us forward to something greater than was there in the beginning, an eschatological man. And then really does that also in a significant way through the lens of sexuality and understanding human sexuality and deriving insight from that. And, and again, it's a, it's a comprehensive, uh, systematic theology that is, as you pointed out, Joe, is entirely internally consistent, is entirely consistent with Scripture, with the whole body of Scripture, and is entirely consistent with the tr- Christian tradition. John Paul II builds on the, uh, on the shoulders of giants. And, and you're pointing out his uh, particular gift, which is certainly a natural gift in terms of being a brilliant man. I mean, he's, he's, he was simply a brilliant man. Mm-hmm. And so... He was able to read a tremendous amount, and then he correlated all of that with his own personal experience. He was truly a philosopher, and so he was a student of human experience and asked questions and observed what happens in his heart. And He had a whole ministry with young people when he was uh, archbishop in 
uh, in Krakow, he went out, you know, canoeing and went out hiking and spent time with married couples, with engaged couples, with college students. And he really was a lover of human love. And so he observed human love from his personal discourse with those who were falling in love and experiencing love. And he observed it also from a Christian perspective and a philosophical perspective. And he's able to weave all of that together in a phenomenal way so that John Paul II really presented something like 80% of the church's teaching on sexuality in the course of the theology of the body. I mean, just a tremendous gift for our time. And amazing that that would be delivered essentially right after the sexual revolution, where uh, modern trends and, and certain movements in our secular culture were driving our understanding of sexuality towards something profoundly immoral and really very destructive. Pope John Paul II gave a reason why Christian morality and Christian understanding of sexuality is really what fulfills us and is what brings us toward becoming fulfilled human beings, toward becoming saints. And our sexuality is not a problem to overcome, but is really a gift that God has given us that is meant to move us forward, but needs to be properly understood in the light of revelation and in the light of uh, just philosophical reasoning. So, yeah, it's a, really a tremendous work. And, and as you said, in terms of uh, reading the Gospels and trying to understand the whole picture, it's uh, hard to do, but really important to do. I think we've really been diminished by our soundbite culture of mm -hmm. thinking that you can actually understand something by reading a line or two of it, deriving a conclusion, reducing an entire work to some very simplistic point simplistic some simplistic aspect of it and then simply dismiss it or wholly embrace it without having first even begun to understand it and we just do this it's the the media does it all the time and sets the example and i don't know how i think our education system is getting more and more uh, frustrated and is giving up and and giving in to the least common denominator these days so uh, it's just really a plague in our time, but it's wonderful to look to examples like Pope John Paul II of how a real scholar uh, can absorb something in its entirety and really synthesize it and, and represent it in, uh, in its essence and in, in a comprehensive and comprehensible and interiorly uh, coherent way. Well, see, now I feel like I ripped it off because the version that I read was the one that was written in simple terms for the common person. Um, so that one only did take me about four <laughs> hours to go through and probably um, probably took away some of the uh, the more articulation that he had there as far as I was talking to Teresa about it after I got done with it. And she was she would look at it and then you know went back to hers and. He definitely did put it into more common terms, you know, as far as, as when it goes through, you know, the fact that he didn't write it originally in English or speak it in English, assuming he, when he dissertated it, it would have been in Italian for his Roman audience. He actually audience. wrote it in Polish, but then delivered it in Italian. So there you go. You're already three languages away, but it's English. So, uh, but like I said, I, I, I went through it in about four or five hours, but I, I definitely would recommend it. There's... There's definitely a contrast in a very significant way that 
obviously from the culture, but obvi- but also from the way that it was presented to me growing up through my Catholic upbringing as far as the education side of it, in the sense that for the most part, now granted, this could be just because you were talking to middle school and high school kids, um, the answer was, you know, try to avoid it, you know, the, um, almost like put it in a box, abstain, and don't address the topic. And in this, you know, teachings that John Paul II did, not only does he go against that, he goes against how you actually should have done it. <laughs> and that is, uh, it's for having never heard that information before presented in that way, just phenomenal. Because he brought so much of the teachings from the Old Testament and the New Testament and just said, this is why, um, opposed to just, you know, the, 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 the RK way of like you would treat a baby. No, just don't touch that hot fire. Don't do it. Well, there's a certain age when that stops working on your audience. And I don't know when that age is exactly, but I know it's somewhere between baby and middle school because that doesn't work for a high school or, or someone in middle school who's going through this, just telling them no all the time. Um, there has to be some reason and logic behind it. And I do think that that obviously I can't break down that entire book in, in one podcast or really even if we did a whole series in it. But I would advise everyone to just go out and, and just give it a shot. It's a, um, it, it's a very deep conversation, and especially the way that he breaks down the two creation stories from Genesis as far as how this is how it was meant to be. You know, the first one being everything's built in the seven days, seventh day you have a rest. And then the creation story of Adam and Eve and how God created Eve in the image of Adam as bones from my bones. And using that language and how he articulated it, I think really did make a tremendous difference and in the teaching of it as far as why you have to go against one of the main teachings of humanity day, why you don't treat women like men in terms of them always being ready because they're on the pill and the importance of the differences between men and women and why you inherently are attracted to the opposite in a way that's different than being wanting to hang out with your friends and go play baseball. So that is, I think, a very big teaching that, you know, I advise everyone. And like I said, it is broken into those three books. And I would like to talk about how he prepares the next generation as far as after you pass, what happens next to your soul. Because all of that together had so many, so many moving parts. Yeah, there's a, there, there are a lot of presentations of the theology of the body and uh, certainly some of the summary works like you read, Joe, uh, are, are very helpful. Christopher West has written some of the most uh, comprehensive and accessible uh, presentations in terms of connecting popular culture with the theology of the body. His introduction to the theology of the body is short and accessible. He has a more comprehensive commentary on it as well. And and then there are just a, a great number of authors. It's really become a buzzword in the 
Catholic circles these days. So a lot of different ways to explore that and a lot of different aspects to that teaching. As I said, it's really a comprehensive systematic theology. So it, it, it covers uh, the whole range of theological topics, but through that understanding of uh, the, inter, the, the human creation, body and soul, male or female, and Pope John Paul derives a number of different insights from that that go against our current reductions and distortions of sexuality and bodiliness. Um, but a simple point being that, you know, we are either male or female. We are not both. And so fundamentally, every human being is missing something. You and I are limited, Joe. We're not female. Mm-hmm. And so that the inherent limitation of our humanity, that there are two different ways of being human, indicates that we're not, we're not completed, there's something missing, and that completion comes through complementarity uh, and, and through self-gift. So uh, understanding our, our fundamental limitation and how that's expressed in our sexuality, and then that completion comes through sexual complementarity, and uh, the communion between male and female expressed in marriage is also pointing ahead toward, uh, you know, f- a fulfillment in, in heaven. Marriage, heaven is a marriage uh, and has that complementarity between the human and the divine. So what male and female are to each other in some way is what God and man are with each other. And the, the heavenly wedding feast is prepared for and witnessed to by the earthly wedding feast. The theology of the body and in recognizing the story of creation that Adam was longing for something. He is alone and it's not good for him to be alone. There's something missing in him, but he doesn't get it by seeking, finding it in creation. It actually comes about by making a gift of himself to God. He gives his life. He enters into a deep sleep. He gives his rib uh, the word rib in Hebrew is, is this essentially the same root as the word life. So he really gives his life to God. And the consequence is he discovers what he's looking for, the one for whom he can give his life in Eve. And he sees of her bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He finally discovers what he's looking for, not by taking, conquering, grasping, but rather by giving of himself. And that's the dynamic of love that's rooted in God. Male and female, he created them in the divine image. He created them from the first creation account. So we see that male and female, love as self-gift, sexual complementarity, all of these are, are, are unfolding for us, are revealing for us the internal life of God. God is divine, one, uh, one God, one nature in three persons. And so it's an eternal, he is an eternal communion of love. The father is not the son and the son is not the father, just as male is not female and female is not male. But that unity happens in the Holy Spirit through the divine dynamic of self-giving love. Man gives himself away in in the gift of femininity and, and femininity is sort of drawn forth from this. Woman receives the gift of man and gives herself as well, and new life comes forth from that. We give it a name nine months later. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so a lot of those different dynamics of, 
of, of human sexuality, of, of human purpose, of the dynamic of, of love and self-gift uh, are, are things that Pope John Paul goes into. And then after he establishes that whole structure, he unfolds uh, the moral dimension, you know, how we draw some of the moral consequences, not just as kind of abstract rules drop down from heaven, but as divine uh, descriptions of how our humanity is. So our, the, the rules of morality are simply a recognition of our nature, you know. So when you, when you have the instructions on a hairdryer, it says, don't put this in water. You know, mm-hmm. it's not just because hairdryer people are opposed to water or have draconian rules. For, it's not the nature of a hairdryer to go into water and bad things will happen. You know, mm-hmm. the rules of morality are, are natural consequences from how we were made. We weren't made for sex outside of marriage. We weren't made for contraception. We weren't made for, for same-sex activity. You know, we weren't made for, for auto-erotic activity. We weren't made for those things. And it's like sticking a hairdryer into water. But they're not just kind of abstract rules that God made up or the church made up or something else. Just being made in the image and likeness of God. We're not made for some other things. Some other activities break us. So Pope John Paul kind of refounds that whole concept in first building out that adequate anthropology and understanding of divine revelation and then um, drawing the consequences for moral actions from that as well. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, just on a side note, how we've talked about in the past about how technology can build upon itself. You can constantly see traces. You know, it required us to have roads, to then have train tracks, to then have highways, and they just kind of build upon itself. And But morality doesn't, and you need need to keep it rooted. And the thing that just strikes me is that Throughout history, when you look at elements that try to ignore the past and just focus on themselves being the most important current generation, bad things tend to happen to them in one format or another. They they almost always have a worse standard of living because they have gone away trying to ignore or delete the past rather than the ones that are most successful throughout world history are the ones that recognize the past and, and live it. You know, they're not the ones who are causing, causing revolution every 10 minutes um, and, you know, burning down the world essentially. So mm-hmm. that is a, an observation that, that I think has a lot of prudence, you know, just because you weren't there when the discovery of morality was made, or it might be a little bit hard there's this push to discount it and try to delete it to try to push whatever you're trying to accomplish in this moment for normally selfish gains. And that's as, as you rearticulate that there, something that popped in my head. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that he did strike me with and going through the Bible again, as, as he was quoting it from Jesus, um, was the Pharisees kept trying to trick him up. I I guess that the way the Gospels use the Pharisees as the voice of society at that time, if if you will. You know, they're they're testing him all the time, trying to get him to say something that doesn't jive with the rest of the teachings of the faith. And just going through that section and 
like I said, just going through Mark and Matthew, both of them dive through it very well about the Pharisees trying to trip Jesus up and him saying just deep answers that blew their mind that they have no idea how to handle it. And one of them that that uh, the Pope mentioned there in the uh, theology of the body was the Pharisees bring the example to him about how if a man dies and his wife doesn't have a, a child, the brother should take him on. And there were seven brothers. None of them gave a child to this woman. So whose wife will she be in heaven? And Jesus answers, basically, you guys don't get this. You know, you're missing the whole core concept. And it's, then he says in heaven that you'll neither be married nor be betrothed to marriage. And I got to be honest, that part made me kind of sad when it dawned on me. It was, you know, because here on earth, you know, marriage is happy, you know, and, and to find out that that's not how it's going to be later on was sad. But then I think about 10 minutes later, well, that's just me on the other side of the spectrum of me not getting it. So um, just kind of recognizing that objectively. And uh, I don't know. You know, if, if we got time here, we got about five minutes left in the cast, and we can kind of dive into that particular parable that, that or problem that the Pharisees gave to Jesus and and how it works. Yeah, the whenever we have this idea of heaven as uh, well, whenever we think about heaven, we can always start from whatever you can imagine. It's better than that. So. Uh, the fact that we could have some sadness about heaven means that we're not getting it. Uh, so whatever we can imagine, it's, it's better than that. What is Jesus saying about marriage? He's saying, you know, think of how wonderful your marriage is. And your marriage is just getting started, Joe, but how wonderful it already is. Mm-hmm. And it will only get better as you keep dying to yourself and making a gift of yourself and in your human sexuality and complementarity or giving birth to new life and bound together in that new life, sharing the responsibility of that and deepening your love and knowledge for all these beautiful things that happen in marriage. It only gets better and better if you're living it fully and allowing God to be really in the center of it. Um, so uh, that your, your marriage to Teresa has a kind of fundamental limitation that in being married to her, you're not married to everybody else. Uh, nor are you sort of married to God, we might say. What what happens in heaven is all of the beauty of marriage, but instead of being directed toward a human spouse, it's directed toward God. Mm-hmm. And then furthermore, in that very process of being married to God and having the, the kind of one flesh union with him, being totally in him and him being totally in us, is that we are actually totally in each other and everybody else is totally in us. So what you're just getting a taste of with Teresa is is magnified to this infinite degree in heaven. But with our our focus, our direct focus being on God and being totally in him and him being totally in us and in that process being absolutely one with each other and there with no boundaries. So you experience all kinds of limitations with Teresa. You're not with her right now, as far as I can tell. And mm-hmm. there are plenty of times during the day that you're not with her. And you have a deeper and deeper spiritual bond and, uh, 
and, and hearts united and things like this, but we still experience the physical separation we experience it. And even in those moments of, of real unity and uh, maybe in sexual intimacy, it, it's, it's still fleeting, you know, and, and it's just very partial, but what that's just pointing to, that's the tip of the iceberg. What we're really meant is to have this total mutual indwelling in God. And then we say, what in the world does that look like? And St. Paul says, I has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it so much as dawned on man what God has prepared for those who love him. So at the same time that we, we sort of say, well, look at this wonderful human experience we have now. It's better than that. But that's the shape of it. Marriage is the shape of the kind of love that we have in heaven. And that's where when we say, what is that? You know, God as the bridegroom, God as, uh, you know, this, this divine wedding feast of the lamb that we hear in the book of Revelation. Like, what does that look like? Well, I look to marriage to get an idea of what that looks like. That's why your marriage is a sacrament. It's a sign of what God fulfills in, a, in an even more spectacular way in heaven. Mm-hmm. My sacrament, uh, well, my uh, living out of a consecrated life, it's easier to see with consecrated women uh, that as a bride of Christ, that gives us another sense of they're already living that heavenly wedding feast in faith. So it's not fulfilled yet. But that's where their focus is. Your focus is, or easier to say, Teresa's focus is on you, her bridegroom. A nun's focus is on Jesus, her bridegroom. But we don't know what a bridegroom is if it weren't for you and Teresa. You know? So mm-hmm. that's where marriage and consecrated life really mutually inform each other. They help each other. And, and they're giving us just glimpses of what that eternal reality looks like in heaven. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I think that's a beautiful final note to, to leave out here. And as always, we'd like to keep growing our cast as we have been. So if you can give us the reviews that you have been on your subscription services, wherever you're getting your cast from, as well as please retweet us out whenever you are watching us on Twitter as we you know, release our weekly reviews. So thank you guys very much. We look forward to talking with you next week. I'll talk to you then.